Welcome to Real Leaders Radio, bringing you the story behind the story of the most innovative, authentic leaders we know. And now, here's your host, Sue Heilbronner. Hey, everyone. So I want to welcome Dave Falter. Dave now is the founder and CEO of a company called Milestone, but this is, I don't know exactly how to count how many successful startups he's built. And Dave's coming to us from Boston. Dave also is a partner with Boston Seeds, so he also plays the role of investor. In the interest of full and fair disclosure, I sit on a board, a board of a company called Kindara. If you're trying to get pregnant or avoid pregnancy, little plug here, go to Kindara.com, download the app, and buy the amazing new connected basal thermometer called Wink. Okay, Dave, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. I like I like the uh, officially sponsored by Kendara message at the beginning. That's, good. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. They have no idea. Jeez, we'll, we'll build them after uh, after they go public. So uh, really, really delighted you're here. The way we love to start out these meetings is just to ask you to share your three-minute life story. Everybody can read your bio, but I always find out in doing this, there are stuff that isn't on LinkedIn that's kind of interesting about leaders. So start as far back as you want. We'd love to hear it. Well, let's let's go to the beginning of maybe of maybe starting companies because that's probably the most interesting to folks in the room. I was a psych major. Uh, for those who have never had follow-on degrees or anything like that, I don't have an MBA, and I I never did anything more than get through my psych undergrad. My history begins in corporate America. I spent about three years in corporate America doing analytics for marketing companies. And um, had what I'd call a very early midlife crisis and decided to leave my suit and tie job and went to intern at the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. Here I was, a, you know, out of a, a college, had a great high-paying finance job and end up in that little room of people who were more misfits than anything doing stuff for the Atlantic Monthly. Two things happened there that changed my life. It was early in the Internet. It was 95, 96, and our job was to go online and find quotes from people or research them in in um, books and then to cut and paste them into uh, the Atlantic Monthly's online website. So that's all I did all day. I just cut and paste and called myself a, a coder because I put it in via HTML. That was awesome. But the thing that happened was while we were doing that, we ran out of ideas, and someone said, could you go downstairs and there's a company down there getting started and they have some, they'll have some new ideas. So I walked downstairs and downstairs was, um, Fast Company magazine that was just starting. And so here I was up in the Atlantic Monthly, which was like very stodgy and authorly. And I, I go to a Fast Company and there's people with like their hair's on fire and they're all talking about the internet and all this stuff. And I'm like, this is awesome. I want to do this, whatever this is. Um, so that changed my life. Like something here is happening. The second was um, on the side I was doing accounting at a small little hippie shop in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, a true hippie shop, like like bongs and hemp, and it was pretty awesome. And um, the, a guy there, retail associate, said um, he said to me, "You seem smart. I have a business partner who hates me. Would you mind starting a company with me?" So I said, "Yeah, that sounds really good. I'll do that." I, it was a promotions business. What I learned very quickly is anyone whose partner already hates them probably is not going to be a good partner for me. But that kicked me off. That's where I began. I joined him, and we started a, a first company in about '96. So that's that got me started. I didn't even know you founded the Word of Mouth Marketing Association, which really is your first oddly named entity. I think 
right? At least the acronym, which is Memorable and Famous. We're going to talk about the other odd names that you've chosen. A lot of your career has followed this idea of influencer marketing, which is something we spend a little bit of time on and is now really in vogue, but you were about 15 years ahead of it being in vogue. How did you get to know that that mattered? So I guess a couple things and probably lessons on like on starting your own company. So one is uh, for Wilma, um, our joke was always that we wanted an A in the name so we could say Wilmama, but but no one no one would really get that. So so it was Wilma. You know, influencer for for me like any company, what tends to happen is I will find something that I consider fascinating. And we'll study it just more out of sheer curiosity than anything. And the things that are really good will stick, and I almost can't shake them. I'll almost try to get rid of the idea, et cetera, and I can't shake it. At the time, a book, which many of you have read, I'm sure, called The Tipping Point, had come out. And I read The Tipping Point and um, thought it was really interesting before it had become sort of a trend trend book. And I became so obsessed, I started reading books like The Fusion of Innovations, these very heavy-duty how-do-ideas-spread and truly like beyond all the marketing speak, like what's happening. And I became just insanely obsessed. I could not get it out of my head that all these real world networks get created uh, out of all sorts of things, agriculture uh, to where we were marketing, um, but no one had tapped into it. And so I had the idea, I'll tell you for um, Buzz Agent was the business we started there. Uh, and I'd come through those previous businesses, the one I started with my, my that last partner and to be clear about this, while I was obsessed and I had a clear framework for what to do with it, many, many people around me um, didn't see it as such. We were um, turned down by 200 VCs. Um, I, I fundraised for like a year, couldn't get it started. My wife at the time actually staged an intervention where I came home one day and there was like my father and brother and a couple friends. And I walked in the door and they're like, we need you to sit down and talk about this buzz agent thing. I'm like, what, what's the issue? Oh, this, this is a really dumb idea. You, you have to move on. And so for me, any of the businesses are really obsessions I can't shake. Early, you have to become more knowledgeable than 95% of the people who are in the space. That quickly makes you sort of the, the person who knows more than everybody else, and then you can go use that to your advantage to, to make the industry work. So Buzz Agent, after you got turned down by all these VCs, this is, you know, I always like stories that are like Harry Potter. You know, you get turned down by 200 VCs, you have a phenomenal exit. That's that's that story of, of the at least publication of those, those books. But you, huh, and I, I, I randomly ran, I remember running into Buzz Agent, wondering where the U was, but uh, I didn't have an intervention with you about it. But I did connect with it a couple times in my career. You stayed with that company for 11 years before you had a quite successful exit. And I'm just curious, how do you keep your passion for something and devotion for something for that long? To be fair, I didn't. Um, uh, I spent the first eight years very passionate, and we did, you know, massive fundraising and big growth and all the rest. Um, and, and so 2001 to 2004 was an independent business after being turned down so many times. 2004 through 2008 was venture-backed a high profile cover story of the New York Times magazine, like really big, big idea. Q4 2008 was our biggest quarter and I was still very inspired. I'll save all the stuff in the middle, but 2009 came along and really crushed the business for two reasons. One, the mortgage crisis, but more importantly, um, social media showed up and really transformed our company to give you an idea of like how much we missed this change coming. We had a few things happen. One was, 
in 2006 or so, we were doing about $3 million in revenue. And this guy showed up at our office, Kevin Colloran, who's, who's still around, great guy. And he said, I want to come join Buzz Agent. And so we interviewed him and said, you know, nice try, kid. He was, he was a young kid. Nice try. We'll see you later. So about two months later, he calls me and says, I'm downstairs in your lobby. Can I come up? I'm like, that's a little weird, sure. So he comes up. And he says, I just want to thank you because I've taken a job at a company called Facebook. Uh, I'm the 11th employee. Uh, he's employee 11. And I'm moving to Palo Alto. For those who've seen the social network, he, he was one of those guys that moved to Palo Alto. And he left. And what happened was when he left, oh, I, I should give you some stats. They had 50,000 users and no revenue. And when he left, he said, we, we as a team laughed at him for being such an idiot. Uh, because we were doing 3 million and had 300,000 bus agents. Okay. And so one of the punchlines, I suppose, is a, a few years later, he ran a division of East Coast sales that we had to call every time we wanted to do something. And he'd always be like, Oh yeah. Hey, what's up? Nice to talk. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we missed all of this. And so by 2009, the business cratered a bit. We did three rounds of layoffs. Never, ever, if you're going to do a round of layoffs, always go deep, deep. On the, on the first pass, I would say, think of the, the worst number of people you could lay off that you possibly couldn't lay off anymore and then double it and lay that amount off because you never want to do more than one layoff if you can. But we went through that and by 20, 2009, we laid a bunch of people off. We half sized the company. We started marching back up. It was a very depressing era. And by 2011, it really was time to sell the business. I was very tired and we needed to find a way to, to lengthen um, what was possible. And so we, we went out and began finding someone to buy the company. So passion is something that can be fleeting. I think you have to recognize when you, you've lost that nugget or have people near you that can tell you. The reason I knew is I had a chairman who I'm still very close to, who after one of the board meetings, I came out and said, um, what a great meeting. And he sat me down and said, that was the worst meeting you've ever had. It's time. And I said, really? And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, I can't even see it anymore. He's like, that's why it's time. So it wasn't all the way through. Post-sale, I got re-energized, but that, that's how we got to the sale. One thing I notice about you routinely, Dave, in the short time I've known you, is your humility. Even just telling that Facebook story and the fact that you share it, you know this is recorded and you're still willing to tell it, it's just one of many examples I see. If I'm in a board meeting with Dave, he will routinely defer to other people with less experience than he has on topics where actually he has the greatest financial interest as the largest investor. And one of the issues we face in at Merchlane, which is where we are today, is that it is a an accelerator that's at least 50-50 female-male. Eight of our CEOs are female, two of our CEOs are male. So it's super unique audience. There is a higher degree of humility in this room than there is when I go to other accelerators and hang out there where I'm one of the only women in the room. I just wonder, how do you balance your humble nature with the tenacity it takes to win in these companies and in fundraising? So I think, well, I, let's, let, lesson number one is I was not, um, I've had to work hard at being humble. I suppose that's a nice way to put it. Um, probably the reason Buzz Agent crashed was because I'd lost sight of any sense of humility. I truly if you went back to myself in 2008, I actually believed I was the smartest person, maybe in the world, but, you know, not, not in the world. But, you know, I, I, smarter than anybody, certainly in my business. And, and I would, you know, in my way, let people know that. Like, my answer was the answer, and that's how it happened. So it took a lot of pain in order to realize 
um, that you had to keep listening and, and be, um, you know, empower others to help, help you become better and all that, all those sorts of things. You know, I think that tenacity and humility are not the same thing, right? Humility is the ability to, um, continue to recognize the value of others and to, um, you know, sponge that in a way that allows um, you to be successful because of others, not in spite of others. I think tenacity is just the, the obsessive willingness to keep going under all pretenses. I can take a no and keep going, and that's tenacity, but I can take a no and, and not get mad at the person who told me no, which is humility in, in investing, as I'm sure you've seen. Like, we've had lots of people, when we tell them no, you know, get mad. How much personal sacrifice do you make to make your dream a reality? You know, I think, I think there are two things. One is, um, is whether you're communicating with all of the stakeholders in your life, uh, about whatever changes to your potential situation will happen because of your commitment. You don't want to hide the fact you're trying to sell your house to fund a company or hide the fact that you're not, you know, you're putting a lot on credit cards. You, look, this is what it is. We're all, I want everyone to be comfortable. I, I know it's crazy, et cetera. And then I always think in sort of the 2x multiple, which is if you think it's hard now uh, and you're about to do something risky maybe with your life, you have to imagine that it's going to get twice as hard. And would you stay with the company if it got twice as hard? And if you're comfortable with both of those, then, okay, give it a shot. Each person has a different tolerance level, but communication and double the pain will tell you whether or not you're ready to do it. Dave, after BuzzAgent, uh, you founded your next company. I think it was your next company called Smarterer. So what got you into Smarterer, another hilarious domain name? So let's be clear on just naming. Um, BuzzAgent had no vowel uh, for a very simple reason, which is the other URL was taken that I wanted, and I thought it would be cool to be B-oriented. Uh, by the time we got around to Smarterer, I was so sick of everyone removing vowels that the joke was to add a vowel just to mess with people, which which annoyed many many folks, especially when you would go to like a restaurant and be like, um, you know, the, what company are you? Smarter? They're like they do it anyway, whatever. You can't spell it. Okay, so so um, smarter came about because I would interview people like in any any company. I would interview people quite a bit, and I found myself very uncomfortable with the ability to interview someone where I didn't understand the skill myself and could have no form of validation. So uh, the the actual genesis came out. I had been interviewing someone for a, an analyst position, and at the end of the interview, the, this person said to me, do you know what R is? And I said, uh, no, I, I don't know what R is. And he said very abruptly, well, how the hell can you interview me if you don't even know what R is? Um, and I, I, I didn't hire him because, because I thought he was a little brash, but I did, I did, it did make me think about it. Like, well, okay, how do I figure out how to, how do I know if someone's good if I don't know the skill? And so I went searching for like assessments, et cetera, and figured out that nobody was even close to being able to build rapid assessments for, um, a, a, the broad array of skills that we now have to learn in order to be successful. So, so we used machine learning to capture knowledge from thousands and thousands of people on a subject and then turn those into 10-question assessments that could validate someone's skill in 120 seconds or less. That company sold. You sold that company, and you stayed with the acquirer for two years? 14 months and two weeks. 
Got it. So what was that experience like that you're, you know, able to say now in terms of getting acquired and living as an entrepreneur inside a larger organization? All right. Well, let's, let's go back a tiny bit. Buzz Agent was acquired in 2011. Um, as part of my acquisition there, I joined the global exec team of a company called Dunhumby. Uh, it was about a billion dollar revenue business. 2,500 employees, and so here I was, someone who'd never gone and gotten an MBA and had a company that ran for a while, and suddenly I'm in the 11-person team that's running this company. You know, I'm looking around the room like, what? Why am I here? You know, that the left. I think the big lesson for me there is most people don't really know what they're doing. They just become better and better at faking it enough to get through whatever situation they're in. Okay, and. Here I, I sat in that room, and over time I did learn how to become an executive and what it meant to be in a very large organization, how those move and all the rest. But even when I left three and a half years later, I sort of said, I can't believe that those ten people even think I know what I'm doing because I, I every day is a guess in some form or another, and you just got to just got to you know trust yourself to move through it. Um, enjoyed the enjoyed the learning. When Smarter sold to a company called Pluralsight, which is a fantastic business out of Utah at tech business, um, I chose to not join the exec team mainly because I recognized that the commitment to that business would need to be dramatic, and I didn't know if and how our company might move within the halls there. And so I didn't join the exec team. I ended up running their M&A group, their, their partnership group, and enjoyed greatly being one of the outside CEOs inside this large organization because you have a lot of credibility to the team, but found in this case that the company probably really didn't need the skill I had, and pretty soon the noises in my head to build something else got too loud, and it was, you know, I talked with them for six months or so about what to do with those, and eventually it was just time to time to go. I want to talk a little bit about how you compare being an investor with being a startup entrepreneur uh, and CEO. Um, how are the rules similar, and how are the rules different for you? Which do you like better? So I definitely like starting companies better. Not even it's not even a question. The difference is, you know, on the on the starting a company side, you can do any crazy thing you want to try to figure out how to build a great team and to turn an idea into reality and it's unchartered, you know, territory and you can just figure it out and do what you got to do. As an investor, there's a lot of rules. Is this right for your fund? Is this right for your partners? Would LPs like this? Uh, how much money does this person want versus how much you have? What's What types of terms? So you're like following this real cookbook as an investor. As an entrepreneur, there is no cookbook. Uh, it's a, it's, it's got sort of guide rails, like I need a good team and I need a good idea and I need to figure out how to make that happen. But anything in between that, you gotta you just do, right? So I think that the, the hardest thing as an investor from my side is, you know, I see people come in and I, I think of myself in their shoes and it makes me want to shake about half of them and be like, why would you say that? Uh, and I find that hardest because I'm seeing it too much through the lens of an entrepreneur and how I would pitch and all the rest, and that that's tough. So for these guys, all of whom are in the middle of raising money or about to embark on raising money, um, what are the three most common themes that make you want to lift up an entrepreneur and shake him or her because of what they're saying? <laughs> you can tell when people lie. You know, I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer. Um, and even when maybe you should know, being able to say, you know what, that's a great, that is a great question, and I should know that. I just don't know it, but you see people start to stretch. Um, I think, you know, decks, decks serve a purpose at the right time, 
and you see a lot of people sort of use decks as a crutch as opposed to, right, you come in and have a discussion. You invest in people. You invest in, in someone who you want to spend 10 hours in a car with, and a deck doesn't help you do that. So someone just presenting right away, let me just show you all the, all the slides. They're beautiful. Like, yeah, I, that doesn't, that doesn't really help. Number three, you get a lot of, um, you know, you get a lot of false pressure. You know, oh, I, I, you know, I just came from, you know, over here and I think they're in and hey, a note that's like, things are moving fast. Are you, can we talk? The whole investment community talks to each other. And so you, you, whatever you tell me about how fast they're moving, we actually know how fast they're moving. And so don't ever try to shine up that you're going to lose out if you don't get in. Because if I really was going to lose out, then I would hear from someone else that like everyone else is going to do this round and why haven't they called you? Dave, you talk a lot about local. I love, I just love how much you love Boston. And you talk about, it comes through in a lot of what you say uh, and what you write and what's what, at least what other people write about you. Uh, in terms of sourcing funding, sourcing companies, we happen to be on a board together of a company that's headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. But I think you believe that local is really important for fundraising and building kind of what I call your rabbi network, your support system that people will tell you when you've lost your edge. Yeah. Um, what do you do if you live in South Carolina and you have a really big idea? Uh, I suppose I'd say I probably, it, it depends on what business I'm in, but if it's tech, um, I would move. Um, because your resources and your capacity, your talent resources and your capacity to, to build is very different. If you have to stay, what I would do is there's a company out of New York um, called Articulate. This guy, Adam Schwartz, began the business by, by determining to always be um, virtual, um, and he has no main office, zero, and they only hire people um, based on talent, and so there's no, like, the main office is here and I'm a remote employee. Everyone's remote, even him, and they just figure out a system by which they can work um, effectively in a remote construct, fully remote. So the only way I would do it is I would I would operate your business so that it can get the talent you need, even though you're in a market that doesn't really have that talent. Um, otherwise, you move because there's every, idea aside, financing aside, put all that aside. It is only the team that matters. And if you get the team, you're fine. So you, you're going to have to be virtual if you're not in the top market. Dave, you did invest in this Boulder company called Kandaritz with a K, our sponsor for this podcast. Not really. But um, what made you invest in Kandara? Well, the the individual who came to present, you know, there was a look in his eyes, I think. <laughs> Truly, no joke. Like, I, I actually said he came in through someone uh, that we know really well who's very powerful here in Boston, Neeraj Shah, who's the CEO of Wayfair, a public company. Um, and he called and said, I'm in, invested in this company. We take a look. And I said, I don't, I'm not interested at all. Um, I am so uh, disconnected to women and women's issues and and pregnancy and all the rest. Like, I wouldn't even know what to talk about because I'm, I'm, I'm just an idiot. And he said, no, you should meet him. And so I did. And Will, there's something about the guy that when I looked in his eyes, I was like, holy cow, this guy sees something. And he wasn't offensive, uh, but maybe to this crushing it comment, he was so comfortable with why he was doing what he was doing and and how he could articulate it. I mean, I, I I'll give you an example. He he wore um, what's the what's the sweatshirt that is supposed to be the best sweatshirt ever? The uh, the giant sweatshirt. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Best hoodie ever. Yeah, best hoodie ever. He was wearing one of those. They're not a sponsor of this podcast. They're not a sponsor, right. So let's not name them or else we're going to have to charge them. But he talked, I asked him about it. I'd never seen one in person before. And I'd asked him about it. And we had this 20 minutes about his conviction of why it possibly was the best hoodie ever. (laughs) Which to me, though, this is fundraising 101. He followed me into this, into the depths of a conversation about a gray hoodie while he was there to try to win me over to invest in this business. And he would, he, this is okay. Let's talk about this hoodie. Who cares if we talk about the business? And that's what got me to him. And then when I looked in his eyes, he really, really had this depth of conviction that was hard to stay away from. I went back to my partners and said, this guy's got something special. They were, it took me a while to get them to buy into it. Uh, I was in Boulder. It wasn't in our, our location. You know, he hadn't scaled a business before, all these things. And so I just, I fell in love with him and, and, uh, and think the idea is amazing. What they've done is amazing. And I've, I've, I've learned quite a bit. There's a new CEO at Kendara as yeah. of about a week ago. That was publicly announced. I don't know what you, what would you be willing to share about how that transition happened when this guy you fell in love with yeah. who's now, of course, the chief product officer for the company. Yeah. So Will came like in my, just so Will, but in like my favorite, one of my favorite moments was he, we invest in the company and he shows up for the first board meeting and asked me, he he asked me to go to coffee before. Okay. You're in town. Sure. And, and the night before he sends me a six minute, I think it's a piano solo if I'm remembering correctly. And so I sit down at, at breakfast and he says, did you like my piano solo? And I'm like, yeah, that was, it actually was really good. I'm like, he's like, yeah, I think that's what I want to do for a living. And I said, but whoa, 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 we just put a million dollars into your company. <laughs> what do you mean? What are you saying? And he was like, he, to him, he was like, no, you, we're now in, we're now partners. I, I need to tell you this. And, and I said, Will, are you, are you really thinking of leaving to go do this? And he said, no, but when I, when I'm stuck on a problem, I do write great music. But I am signaling to you that I'm starting to feel complexity in the role I'm in, and we should be partners in talking about what that means. And I found that refreshing, that he was so upfront about it. And many, many entrepreneurs would have lied for the first year to themselves, maybe, and to us. And so he said it right away, and I didn't feel had by any stretch. He wants to be in the business. He said, let's talk about what the best thing is for this company. Here's what I do, and here's what's possible and why this could be something that's good. And we worked over, I mean, Sue, you were incredible in in working through it with us, but we worked over nine months a year to find the right way to do this with Will and and got to the right outcome. And Will stayed in the company and he's still going to do what he does. And CEO Denise is amazing. And, um, you know, we're ready for the next chapter. Dave, what's authentic leadership mean to you? And how do you walk the walk in it? Because even what you're talking about with Will is, is a signal of authenticity that you saw in him. So how do you practice that as a leader? You know, I think the real practice is is ensuring that every member of your team knows that you will let no other member of the team exist in the business if they are not someone that they want they want to learn from every day. So I'm going to give you a, an example. Milestone was founded with seven people, most of which I've worked with in my previous companies. Um, it's six weeks in post-funding, and I just removed one of the co-founders. And, and it, and he, he's a fantastic guy. But what I realized really quickly is things rarely get better when someone isn't working to just the, the context of the team. And 
The team needs to know that you will remove the thing that is holding them back or they are working around in order to be the best they can be. And so I bit the bullet. In my old era, I probably would have let him stay six months saying, oh, it'll get better and he'll learn more and we'll learn more and whatever. But six weeks in, I sat him down and said, this is a really hard conversation. You just left your job, but this isn't going to work and here's why. And was very upfront and he, he took it and we parted ways. I have this belief that we all get one piece of exactly the same feedback from like the age of two. And, and we work and work and work and work on it our entire life. And then uh, you still get the feedback. I'll tell it, I'll tell it in a little bit of a story. So when I joined Dunhumby, we had a certain, um, earnout. And very quickly, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a negotiator at heart. And very quickly, I, um, started negotiating this earnout. And the, the executive team at Dunhumby over a, a very drunk dinner started naming people by their spirit animal. And they, they called me the honey badger mainly because I just would claw and claw and claw until I got what I wanted. Uh, my, my girlfriend now, um, uh, has just sent me a video. Uh, she was one of my business partners at Smarter, which is a longer story, but she sent me a video of a honey badger that a zookeeper keeps in a pen and the honey badger, um, it can't, it, it, it wants to get out of the pen. So it, they just show what it can do. So the first time there's a rake in there and the honey badger drags over the wall and it climbs out. And so they take the rake out and then they have, there's a tire and he rolls it over the edge and climbs out. And then they take the tire out and then the, there's a tree in the middle. So he climbs up the tree, swings out. There's nothing left in the pen. And what does the honey badger to do is he takes a puddle and he starts rolling mud balls and he rolls little mud balls and he rolls like five of them and then stacks them up on the edge of the wall as they dry and climbs out. Okay. <laughs> Which is awesome. Okay. But my, People here say that I am the honey badger. I will do anything to win, but it can look like manipulation. Like I can, I will manipulate everything to solve the need I have to climb out of the pen. All right. And, and I look at it like, look, I just will drive to the end. And some people are like, why do you have to keep scratching away at it to get what you want? Um, so that's probably the thing I hear all the time. It's a great story. Thanks, Dave. This has been great. We really, really appreciate that. Last story is just a great place to end. Thanks for joining us on Real Leaders Radio. Dave Balter, now of Milestone, M-Y-L-E-S-T-O-N-E-D.com. I think one of their lines is that death is the new wedding, which I absolutely love. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Thanks, Sue. Thank you for joining us at Real Leaders Radio. To hear other episodes of this podcast or learn more about Sue Heilbronner, visit us at realleadersradio.com.